The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman, uh, the editor-in-chief of Provoke Media, and I'm joined today by Aaron Lau, who is founder and CEO of Gusto Collective, which is an independent Asian holding company for marketing and communications agencies, but also in particular focused on brand tech. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. I think you're in Shanghai today. Is that right? Yes, I am. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Um, now, Aaron, I've, I've actually known you for quite a while because when I was working for a uh, campaign a long time ago, you were someone I spoke to regularly uh, because you have held leadership roles at several advertising agencies in Asia, most notably uh, Chael Worldwide and DDB. Um, you launched Gusto Collective, I think formally in January 2020, if I'm not mistaken. So I wanted to start perhaps by asking what the kind of concept and idea is behind Gusto Collective and, and, and what makes it different? Well, Gusto Collective really is um, purpose built for the digital age, or as we now call it, probably the metaverse age. Um, and it's a, you know, it sits in the intersection amongst four complementary forces. Um, the first is very much the idea of storytelling and power by technology. And as we know, consumers today are more and more tech savvy and the way they consume stories are very different from the way they used to, the, the previous generation used to consume stories kind of like myself and my father, my mother, and so on. They will be listening to the radio or watching television and so on. And today, um, you know, you would be very difficult to find um, youngsters sitting in front of a TV, watching the TV commercials along with the program and so on and so forth. So the idea of brand tech is really trying to empower stories or storytelling with technology. We also... Um, the other complementary forces that we're looking at or we're embracing is the idea about um, owning IP and producing campaigns. So on the one end, we're still doing quite a lot of campaigns for our clients and, um, and it gives us that diversity, the experience, the creativity and all that. But as we work with clients, we often find clients share many uh, similar pain points. So what we then do when we come back to the office is to really talk about, can we develop IPs and products that can alleviate some of these pain points? Now, particularly if we're dealing with technology um, and, you know, if you um, have an iPhone or a Mac, you'll know your, your software is constantly being optimized. And that is, um, uh, when technology evolved, then you can optimize the, um, um, the, the software. It's exactly the same with um, the agency business. Um, you know, if I were just producing a campaign for a client, so basically my priority would be to bring something um, under budget, uh, on time, and then move on to the next project or move on to the next campaign. 
However, often it may not be the best idea for a technology-driven um, uh, solution. So unless I have skin in the game, so we set out to develop IPs and products that sit alongside with our campaign. So the creative work that we do for our clients sort of inform the kind of products that we uh, develop for ourselves and the products and solutions that we come up with, be it an IP or a software, will then help alleviate some of these pain points for our clients. And we constantly optimize this IP and solutions so that the clients get best in class product to address their marketing issues. Mm, I see. Yeah. So that focus on developing IP and products um, doesn't sound like, you know, a conventional holding company, um, which we'll talk about perhaps. But before we get there, I wanted to just ask you, so how, how is um, Gusto Collective comprised? Because, of course, uh, I'm aware that um, there was an acquisition of Reuters Communications, which is a, you know, a well-known um, China luxury-focused uh, communications agency, which I think is now is now known as Gusto Lux. Um, so, what else is within the group? Well, we have um, three uh, operating entities, as you just mentioned. Gusto Lux is a specialist uh, communications firm focused in the premium luxury sector, um, and we currently have. Um, three offices within Gusto Lux. We have Shanghai, which is our um, uh, main office there. Uh, we have a smaller office in Hong Kong, and we also just built a uh, small branch office in London, primarily for um, uh, coordination uh, work that we, um, we provide for our multinational clients. So that's basically the Gusto Lux operation. Then we built a Gusto Labs operation, which is the backbone of the company. And this is where the IP, the technology sits. Uh, right now we are in Hong Kong and um, we're about to open up in the Greater Bay Area as well as in Shanghai. Um, and we hope to make an acquisition in Singapore before the end of the year. So Gusto Labs will be represented in basically four locations, uh, Hong Kong, Greater Bay Area in Shenzhen, Shanghai and Singapore. And then we've just built another operations um, in a company called Gusto Mojo in Shanghai. And this is a, uh, a practice that focus on one of our IPs, which is um, a meta human platform. So we've built a meta human or virtual KOL. Uh, for the benefits of uh, a, a number of our clients. So, and as you know, China is one of the key markets for influencer marketing. So we decided to build an operation in um, Shanghai dedicated to um, marketing our virtual KOL. So those, that, that's three operating entities. It's basically what um, uh, Gusto Collective is all about as we, um, as we speak. Mm, sure. Um... It sounds very much like the kind of group you would design if you were designing one today, rather than, let's say, fifty years ago, when, when many of the holding groups, you know, the holding group giants were were being developed. Um, you, I, from what I understand, there, there is, you know, you've been able to attract funding as well. I think a seed round um, and another round, I believe. 
what is it that external investors um, do you think find interesting about the Gusto Collective offering? I guess there are basically three key areas. I guess the first one is we're very much Asian focused and we're trying to take advantage of the massive growth that we see in this part of the world, um, be it China in the last 10 years, then today you have Vietnam coming through the pipeline, India, Indonesia, and so on. So we're sitting in the in a, in a you know massive growth region and we're very focused in in this area. I guess the second reason why we were able to attract um, investors is the idea about taking traditional advertising or digital communications and and you know bring it to the 21st century by combining immersive technologies onto um, traditional storytelling, particularly the kind of technology that we work with a lot is augmented reality, mixed reality, uh, metahuman with Unreal Engine and, and um, things like that. And that's segue into the future. Um, and then it sort of takes us naturally into the world of metaverses, which is very much founded on augmented reality. But we have the capabilities to build metaverses for clients. Uh, we've just minted an NFT for ourselves that was auctioned off by Philips um, uh, on February the 22nd. And it's a global art piece that we own and we commissioned uh, or we, we asked Philips to um, auction it off for us, um, which is again, very unusual for uh, a, a, an agency. And because of the opportunity of, uh, if you like, providing Web3 services, I think a lot of our investors find it really interesting that we are sitting in so many um, different cross sessions, but all sort of very much related to massive growth opportunities. And what do you think you've learned from your experience at the big agencies, um, the big holding groups, the lessons you've learned, and, and maybe even perhaps, you know, some of the, the things you've learned to avoid? Well, you know, the, um, um, the holding companies in the agency space, um, you know, they obviously became big because they were really successful in their own right. Um, I, th I think one of the, um, the lessons I've learned is um, the idea about or the importance about being multi-local as opposed to global in the more traditional sense of the word. Um, so I guess the, the way I would look at this is, you know, often when um, global firms expand um, across geography, uh, sometimes they commit the same mistakes that often we would advise clients not to make. And that is bringing things down to the lowest common denominator, common denominator, uh, in the name of globalization. And sometimes I think um, uh, global agency firms often don't think about the importance of being best in class wherever they operate. Um, and that's sort of segue into the idea about being multi-local um, because what works in the US may not necessarily work in a place like China uh, because the 
the ecosystem is different, the dynamics are different, but when you try to replicate uh, what's been very successful in your home office and you replicate it 200 times, then uh, you find yourself often uh, bringing everything down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, the more successful agencies are generally uh, uh, producing the best work um, in that local market. So I think that that's really important, particularly in this day and age when essentially your clients or your customers are not only global, but they're also local. So you need to address that. You, pull, you need to pull that local heartstrings. Um, the second... The second thing that I've learned, particularly, I guess, with the um, the traditional uh, agencies that been that's been extremely successful, is um, not to be a generalist uh, agency. Uh, those days are gone, and um, the masters in you know in all the famous agencies out there have already occupied a huge um, market share in their respective uh, geographies. And I believe um, in the digital age, when uh, particularly with the arrival of the internet, clients are looking for specialisms, but they're looking for specialisms that collaborate around their challenges. So in order to be successful, one, you need to be subject matter specialist. Now, I don't mean from a discipline standpoint, because the, the swing lane that often agencies assign themselves are digital, website bill, uh, uh, CRM, and so on. So obviously those are important um, swim lanes, but you need to add another dimension to it, and that is industry experts. Um, so if you operate in the luxury sector, there are dynamics within the luxury sectors that may not apply to mass market brands and the vice versa. So we, we really set out to do specialisms collaborating around client challenges. And that's also one of the reasons why we made the acquisition with what was Reuters Communication, because we believe there's tremendous growth out of Asia for luxury brands and premium brands. So instead of going after a generalist agency, we went after a specialist agency. And then when we built our technology practice, once again, we don't just build I guess web 2.0 type of agencies where you're making websites for our clients or HTML, HTML5 campaigns. We focus very much on augmented reality, Unreal Engines, Unity, things that, are, that have a, a um, forward-looking perspective to it so that we future-proof the businesses that we are uh, coming into or bringing into our, our organization. And I guess these are some of the things that I've learned from my days at, um, um, you know, at DDB and Chell. Now, these are very successful agencies in their own right, um, along with many others. But quite frankly, as a newcomer, uh, we realized the world really does not need another ad agency. They don't need a global agency or regional agencies. There are far too many out there. What they do need is a different perspective, a different vision for how communications um, will be developed for the new type of consumers that particularly in this part of the world where, you know, generally speaking, the consumers are much more digitally savvy. And that's how we sort of um, um, taken advantage of learning from the masters of, of yesteryears um, and, and, you know, and not repeat the same challenges or maybe the, the same issues that they are dealing with. 
And um, so when we built this, we have um, forward-looking technology that we're looking at. We have specific industry sectors that we um, um, decided to go after. And then we bring the whole thing together, especially for that, um, for, for that, for that market. And in terms of your focus on, um, I think you called it immersive technologies, for example, um, do you find that those areas are perhaps less commoditized? Um, is there, I mean, do you see it, I suppose, a bigger opportunity? Or do you find that you're still having to provide some of these tr traditional, you know, let's call them analog services as well? Um, there are challenges associated with um, um, immersive or emerging immersive technologies. Um, one, we find not many clients truly understands um, how it works. Um, they can't quite price it, unlike a, a website bill or shooting a TV commercial. You sort of been operating in that space for quite some time. And as a result, you sort of know it costs uh, X amount to do a website, uh, Y amount to do a, uh, a 30 second TV commercial. The client more or less have an idea. When we're dealing with augmented reality and uh, mixed reality type of work, um, uh, frankly, you know, there isn't a set price for something like this. It all depends on what you want to achieve and all that. And that's an advantage, but also a, um, a challenge. The challenge, I'll speak about the challenges first. The challenges would be the clients don't really know how much budget to assign for a project like that, nor do they know how much time to allow for a project to develop like that. Um, and in our first year of operation, we actually had to turn down quite a lot of opportunities. Either the clients didn't have enough budget allocated for, for um, the execution, or we just don't have enough time to execute. And um, it was a tough decision, particularly our first year of operations were 2020. And um, you would recall um, COVID, well, well, COVID is still around, but COVID was beginning to impact the world's economy. Um, and um, when we have to turn projects down, it was tough from a financial standpoint. But, you know, in the name of, you know, our brand, we felt this is not something that we want to compromise. So we turned down quite a few opportunities uh, because we don't really want to uh, compromise the product that we develop for our clients. Um, then slowly and gradually, more and more clients are beginning to understand how long it takes to do augmented reality, how long it, how much it takes to do something proper, and so on. So, 2021 really was the first time that we saw a um, a very substantial increase in the demand for this type of product. And when they see the return, and in our firm we have a a, a, a KPI that we use to measure um, um, the impact that we make for our clients. We call it ROX, as in return on experience. So we often look at, well, here's how much you're going to spend. Here's how much you are, you know, bringing, how many connections you're bringing to this experience and what um, 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 results are you going to be able to generate and so on and so forth. So we're now beginning to see more and more clients are, um, are interested in um, these type of deliveries. Um, and in recent months, uh, we're getting a massive um, 
uh, inquiries in the uh, about you know um, how to build in the metaverses, um, NFTs, um, gaming, and all the components that 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 sort of um, uh, make up for the world of uh, the ecosystem of metaverses. Mm, and just just staying on that point, with these kind of emerging technologies, whether it's NFTs or the metaverse, um, you know, there's there's often a lot of hype. The latest shiny new thing comes along. Um, sometimes that can cause a little bit of a backlash. Are you seeing clients willing to spend big budgets here? Is there still a lot of education required? Um. There are a lot of education uh, required, and um, often when the client is interested in whether it's an NFT or, um, on a broader sense, the idea of building something about uh, something in the metaverse or for the metaverse, they often don't really know why they wanted to do this. It's just that there's so many people now talking about NFTs, and often you hear about how much money so and so made in uh, minting these NFTs. Um, obviously, any brands would be interested in in um, in generating, you know, revenue and and financial returns and all that. And often, what we um, suggest to a client is two things. One, when you mint an NFT, even if it's uh, really successful, if it's a one-off, then you really have to think about your operational, sorry, your reputational risk. Because the last thing your customer want is for you to make a fast buck. And then, you know, then there's no no other utility available on the NFT. So it becomes a, a one-off money uh, or revenue generating exercise. And obviously with any global brands, with any successful brands, you don't want to do this. Um, and now it's very different from an individual or artist minting an NFT. So there won't be any reputational risk, but if you're working with uh, in a branded environment, if you represent one of the, the global brands, when you decide to mint an NFT, you got to ask yourself, why would I, why would I mint an NFT even if there's demand for it? Um, and what would be the benefit of someone holding an NFT from my brand? That's something that I often ask clients to think three, four, five, six times to convince themselves that there is utility, there is value, that a holder of NFT um, branded under their, their uh, franchise um, uh, would benefit from. The second aspect of it is the metaverse, particularly with Facebook renaming as Meta. There's a tremendous improvement in terms of uh, at least the awareness of um, metaverses. Again, most clients are really interested in it. And often our recommendation, uh, if one wants to build, uh, whether it's a miniverse or metaverse, whether it's a closed system or open system. And we often say the most important element about the metaverse is the social element is the community element you're building a metaverse so that your the lovers of your brand could constantly visit and be able to take away all the physical limitations so if someone's sitting in new york they can go into your your metaverse and experience something that is truly global and maybe even catch up with someone who's 
just as much in love with the brand from, let's say, Hong Kong. And that is the beauty of the metaverse. And um, so if you get those priorities right, then the the value of the metaverse, the value of the NFT would become a lot more apparent. So often those are some of the challenges um, that we often uh, come across when talking to clients about building in uh, in the world of metaverses. Uh, and along with it, obviously, concerts, NFTs, um, gaming, all, all of that are part of the, um, uh, the ecosystem that make up um, the world of metaverse. Mm. So when it comes to NFT specifically, I mean, I mean what, what are the benefits for companies typically when, when, you're, when you're talking to clients? Well, the best, I mean, obviously NFT has been around for what, two years or so, and people are seeing massive growth. Uh, in the world of MF NFTs, I believe in 2021, 60% of all the NFTs are collectibles. Um, so, um, and they could be art, uh, they could be PFP, and so on and so forth. Um, but if brands only beginning to go into the world of NFTs, and often um, there is an element of the collectibility collectability of the NFT, but then brands will need to figure out a roadmap that allows the owner of that NFP, NFT um, to have some utility value with um, uh, whatever you know, services that they're providing for a client, for their, for their customers. Um, take for instance, if I'm not mistaken, you know, when uh, Adidas went into the world of um, uh, NFT at the end of 2021, and they did a joint program or cross collaboration with um, uh, Board Ape Yacht Club, um, G Money, and and there's one other um, uh, crypto influencer, is they have this, um, the Board Ape Yacht Club in an Adidas suit, which looks quite cool. But at the same time, there is a physical element about it that you get priority um, VIP um, access to um, new shoes or uh, uh, um, pop-up stores or whatever. So um, again, if it were brands going into NFTs and all that, often there's a digital um, element to it. There is obviously the virtual world, um, but then there's also something that you could, um, you could um, use in the physical world in whether it's a store or a service and all that. Um, but again, um, NFTs and metaverses are only beginning to take shape. Um, it would probably take another two, three, four, five years for it to shake out, shake out, and 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 have some norms. At the moment, there are more and more um, uh, interest. Um, there are more funding there, um, and as a result, you you will see uh, innovation. You would see um, um, a creativity, and that's the area that we're also very interested in in pursuing as opposed to a very straightforward uh, collectible piece of art that someone would um, uh, hold uh, for a period of time for um, uh, appreciation value. Uh, what we're looking at is more about the utility value mm -hmm. of an NFT, particularly when it comes to brands. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank you for that. It's very, very, very useful overview um, of an area that I think is not necessarily all that well understood um, across the sector in general. 
So just coming back to Gusto Collective as a kind of, as a sort of overall vehicle and company, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, about the sort of geographic benefits of being multi-local um, versus um, the kind of one-size-fits-all model that I think has been popular with, you know, the, the, the big holding groups. And it, it sounds like a no-brainer. Um, obviously, the, the closer you can get to local clients, local audiences, local insight, the better. Um, in practice, it seems to have been quite difficult uh, to kind of execute on that kind of a plan for, for many, you know, multinational um, holding groups. Uh, and I, I suppose the question here is how much, um, you know, do you, do you, is it a question of letting go of control to a certain extent when it comes to your, your component parts? Um, or, or how much do you need to kind of uh, act and behave like a single brand and a single business? Well, um, yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. And um, the, you know, first of all, we don't really believe in the one size fits all um, um, uh, philosophy. Uh, we're not a McDonald's. Um, we don't have the same product over and over and over again. Um, we generally develop, um, you know, different campaigns for different um, parts of the world or different clients and all that. So uh, uh, an element of um, bespokeness is important to the campaign part of our business. At the same time, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we really believe in specialisms. Um, so all the, the key members of our team are all subject matter specialists, and it could be a discipline or it could be the industry. And because of that, then we find the overlap between one office and another, uh, with the one size fits all system is less of an issue because we don't have that. Um, so we have, for instance, in Shanghai, luxury specialist, and um, you know we could apply some of their knowledge to another market because the consumers are looking for more or less the same thing. So we just need to take that um, industry specialisms to apply to another geography. And with the technology side of it, it's even more so because a lot of the technology that we use are global technology. And again, because there's not a, over, not a lot of overlap, then it makes it easier for people to collaborate. And I call this cross-fertilization as opposed to integration. Uh, integration has a terrible, um, generally a terrible perception in, in this industry. Again, it's mm -hmm. almost just that you bring everything down to the lowest common denominator. And uh, in, a, in a creative business, that will be the death nail, right? Because you don't want to have the lowest common denominator. You're not a supermarket. What you really want is all these specialists, uh, be it a, a, a discipline or an industry, to come together and they each of them have something to offer each other and they learn from each other. And then um, having that, that um, singularity, if you like, with the Gusto brand brings everything to a focus. And again, it goes back to fundamentally, we want to be um, telling great stories uh, about our clients or um, the product that we develop, but then you use the best in class technology that you can find to bring it alive. And then, you know, the campaigns that you do for your clients need to be powered 
by a lot of the IPs and the product that we own, and therefore there we've got skin in the game. So we're not there just for a campaign, and four weeks later we move on to the next campaign. We're there to make sure the product they've developed are uh, 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 generating results for our clients and so on. So in that regard, that's the fundamental model. However, to find people who believe in this is every bit as difficult. Uh, very luckily, you know, we do have that um, uh, that combination. So a lot of the Gusto Lux people are, if you like, traditional agency people, PR people. Almost everybody at Labs have never worked in an agency. They're all technologists. We have UX UI designers. You have um, uh, software developers. You have project managers that you know that focus on the uh, on the um, uh, the product itself and so on. We don't have any agency staff, uh, you know, on our payroll at Labs, and it's even more so when it comes to the virtual KOL platforms. These are all technologists, at least at this stage of our development. These are all technologists that actually bring alive a meta-human. Um, and we now are beginning to build, you know, content management, uh, content provide, content creators and all that into our franchise so that we could um, 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 attract the right following. So in our execution, in our um, uh, system, we try to find different types of people that have not a lot of overlapping uh, capabilities. And the key is that we got to have to find um, that glue in the middle that brings everybody together for the benefits of whether it's the product or the IP that we develop or the campaigns that we develop for our clients. That is the, um, uh, the, the, the secret sauce that we're looking for. We have not perfected it. We are still learning. Uh, you know, we, we, we learn from failure, we learn from some of our successes, um, but it's, it's sure as hell it's a lot of fun, you know, putting together all these um, elements into the fold for Gusto. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and no doubt that, that glue is, is important for the kind of overall culture of the, of the company as well, right? Um, so you have Gusto Lux, uh, Gusto Labs, Gusto Mojo, um, you've got funding, you've made some acquisitions, what comes next? Well, we are, as I mentioned, that we are expanding into Southeast Asia with uh, an acquisition in Singapore. And I'm hoping that um, uh, we'll have a, um, a foot in the door um, before the end of the year. We're also looking at um, Japan uh, for North Asia. And once we establish these, uh, um, you know, four or five uh, offices in these locations, and then we would deepen the technology and deepen the IP, the products that we um, we have in our portfolio. So then it goes to basically, if you like, um, if there is a central kitchen that develop these IPs and products, then the offices uh, in the geography that we that we are in, will then start selling these products and and uh, IPs to our to our you know customers, if you like. Then the um, the Southeast Asia piece is an important one for us um, because after China, you know, India, 
Indonesia, Vietnam, these are massive growth markets. And there's a lot for us to learn from these markets and actually start adapting some of our IPs and products and campaigns for the benefits of this particular market. And we already have um, some good experience operating in greater China, um, and we will continue to execute in greater China. And then in North Asia, um, we think there's a lot of opportunities in Japan, um, even though it is an aging society, but uh, Japan has tremendous product, uh, tremendous um, uh artisanal values that we think will bring another dimension to what we're trying to achieve at Gusto. But we will very much remain Asian focused. We might build an office in New York, for instance, to coordinate for our US clients and all that. But our main focus will always be in um, Asia. And then the other aspect of the development is going um, deeper and deeper and deeper into the world of Web 3.0. In other words, um, uh, learning about how to build, uh, whether it's Sandbox or Decentraland or Roblox or Fortnite, or you know, building a miniverse for a specific client. Um, understanding how one would do NFTs, and you know, as NFTs evolve, we want to be at the forefront of doing some innovative NFTs uh, for ourselves and for our clients. Uh, MetaHuman, we think, you know, KOL has a long way to go, particularly with, you know, technologies where, we're, for instance, we're exploring how we could do live streaming with our virtual KOL. And last but not least, in the world of Metaverse is how you bring um, alive the experiences that will um, uh, reward these brand lovers, these metaverse lovers, this is why they would, you know, go to a metaverse, whether it's a concert or a fashion show. And these are the things that we think is really important. So there's a lot for us to do. There is a lot. Yeah, no, there's, it's very interesting to hear of your plans. Um, it's great, actually, to see the emergence um, of a holding group so focused on Asia. Uh, I think that is an idea whose, you know, whose time has come and, and, and you know, frankly speaking, there haven't been that many um, over the last 20 years. So uh, the best of luck to you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us on your show. Thank you. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Marketeers.